As we come back together this morning, we're, uh, we're going through a sermon series on relationships. Uh, we've, we've broadened or perhaps expanded that. Uh, we are, of course, uh, Steve preached uh, a sermon on marriage. We're going to talk about relationships between men and women and children and their parents and uh, many of those wonderful relationships that are uh, very personal. Uh, but not surprising uh, for those of you who know me, uh, I've also painted a broader picture because these relationships are, are bigger and broader than just our interpersonal, no less than... But there are bigger relationships that often have a tendency to shape how we view those most intimate one-on-one relationships. And of course, we started then with an understanding, or at least the beginning of an understanding, with the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, because we have at its very inception an understanding that a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates humanity in His image in community with one another, in community with Him. And we have defined that community, as it's been defined by many great scholars, as a community of love and mutual service. The Trinity exists in love and care for one another. It is, uh, and again, loaded language in our day and age, but a, a community of mutual submission for the good of the other. It is not preoccupied uh, with its protection of itself. The Father doesn't use the Son to do things the Father doesn't want to do. The Spirit isn't left holding the bag because the Father and the Son had a one, two, three, not it about who would go live in these people uh, down on earth. It is, in fact, a beautiful picture of a community caring and serving for a common goal of the love that exists within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a mutually submissive, serving life-giving community. To the degree that we describe the Trinity as three persons and one substance, one God, our minds don't fully comprehend that, but it does tell us something about the nature of what it is to be in community, the nature of what it is to be created in the image of God, to be individuals, and yet to share substance. It presses hard against the notions uh, and the heresies about modalism, which is one God just wearing different face masks depending on what role he's fulfilling. None of those heresies, although they're helpful in the sense that we can get our minds around, I can get the idea that sometimes I'm a pastor and sometimes I'm a dad and sometimes I am uh, a husband, right? Husband, dad, pastor. Uh, But that's just me wearing different hats. Oh, okay, that's kind of like God. I can get my mind around that. That isn't it at all. There is a community. I don't know how three in one works beyond the affirming that God uniquely reveals himself as one in community. And we are therefore called to unpack what it means to be created in his image as we are in fellowship with him and with one another. Now the tragedy is that in the midst of that, the one put himself in priority over the we, over the community. And we see that in the temptation of Adam and Eve. 
the temptation for individual knowledge, to be equal to God, to be willing to not only betray God, but potentially betray each other to achieve those ends and goals. And relationship and community and image bearing is marred and destroyed by the need for personal security and gain and identity. And we've been struggling ever since with how to restore the relationship. Sometimes we go completely communal and there's no individual presence at all and those eventually end up as train wrecks. And certainly uh, cultures that are overly uh, impressed upon the community have a tendency to really chew up the individual. The individual has no identity and purpose and so the community chews them up. Some of the tragedies in Chinese history are amazing because of the number of people who died in wars that barely make a footnote in Chinese history because of the communal understanding and the superiority of the emperor. The numbers are staggering throughout Chinese history. No understanding of the individual. I talk to people and my friends in Korean churches and there is often a challenge because of the power of family and the power of community to understand the role of individual salvation. And so even though there is a lot of effectiveness and even though there is a lot of richness to it, if you overemphasize the community to the detriment of the individual, you end up with one perversion of what it means to be created in the image of God. But most of us living in the West struggle much more with any sense that we need anybody but maybe Jesus, and that's just to get into heaven, and then after that, hopefully he'll leave us alone as well. And it is this sense of the individual's strength and autonomy. I was talking to one of our friends at at Safe Families, and the notion that we tell the poor that what they need to do is become self-sufficient, to stand on their own two feet, which is a nice idea, except that that's not how the rich people function. As I pointed out, we have golf clubs and kiwanas so that we can meet other people who can do stuff for us. We have relationships that benefit us because, of course, none of us are self-sufficient. We all live in community. And the lie is to tell somebody to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. When all of us live in some kind of a community that is either holding us back or holding us up and leading us forward. We all exist in community. And so we here have to push against the notion that the individual is all sufficient. This morning, as we begin to, or as we continue to unpack what it is to be image bearers, and live in relationship, we're going to talk about the rather challenging relationship between employers and employees. What does it mean to work? Because we know we're called to work. It's part of what it is to be created in the image of God. God is a creator. He delights to build things. And he gives us the ability to shape and to structure creation, to make new things out of the things that God made, to reflect small c as creators here on earth. But in the midst of sin, the relationship between those who have the ability to manage and lead and those who have the gifts to do various kinds of work and labor and uh, craftsmanship can be rather stressful. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at some of the biblical context for that. We're going to start uh, in a well-known parable in Matthew chapter 20. Hear now God's word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now again, the context is the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the reason I'm using this parable this morning is that Jesus seems to be indicating that these are the ethics and the way that the kingdom of heaven works. It isn't a question of whether or not these things pragmatically work in the way we understand business. But Jesus is saying in the positive, here's the way things work in my kingdom. My kingdom people work this way. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idly in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So, that, uh, so they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and find, found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idly all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now those who were hired first came, and they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers only uh, worked one hour, and you have made them equal with us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, am I, doing you, uh, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what uh, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you begrudging me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask again, Lord, that we might delight in the hopes and the opportunity of what it means to be your people. Lord, to be holy, those set apart. We ask, Lord, that in all things, as we interact with one another inside the body and out, that in ever greater degrees we might reflect the glory of who you are. We pray this morning that you would be gracious to the preaching of your word and whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, that it would be quickly forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we come to a text like this, and it, and it does really have a, a context, which we'll address uh, here shortly. But labor relations uh, have regularly been difficult. Uh, and most of human history, uh, written in the relationship between uh, those who own the means of production, to use uh, more recent language, and those who are the laborers, uh, is usually written in a fair amount of blood and violence. 
Uh, if you go back to uh, the 14th century, when basic capitalism was starting to emerge out of feudalism, uh, those guys who wanted to run businesses in Flanders were viewed rather poorly by their French uh, nobility, and they were slaughtered on a regular basis every time they got uppity uh, about doing business. There was a lot of conflict between uh, the basic notions of those who, by right of fiat and a feudal system, and those who, by their efforts, uh, were trying to create trade, who would own what and who had the ability to determine what was their labor. Uh, in uh, the last century, uh, the relationship between those who owned uh, factories, the capitalists, and those who uh, worked, the labor, uh, occasionally got rather uh, aggressive as well. Uh, some rather violent times were had, not just in the Soviet Union or the Russia at the time, uh, but also uh, here in our country. Uh, riots between labor and uh, management have happened often. It is a tense relationship because so much is at stake. It appears so much of our very security and identity is at stake. And so Jesus, not surprisingly, uses both an opportunity to talk about the way it is that people function within the community of faith, to use an illustration that also underlines a different way of understanding what it is to be a part of an economic relationship in the kingdom of God. And so I want to run through this text uh, with you this morning, hopefully highlighting some ways in which from here and other texts we see a different way of understanding how those who are gifted with the responsibility of owning property or being business leaders and having that ability, turns out we're not all gifted to do that. And that's okay. And those gifted with the ability to be craftsmen and laborers and to work are gifted and should be honored for that as God enables. So first of all, we are starting in verse 1 with the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is outlining the way the kingdom of heaven works. And in the context, what he's doing is certainly addressing the disciples' misunderstanding about what power and significance looks like in the kingdom of God. And so we jump back to chapter 19, if you have your Bibles open, and we see that we've had the interaction with the rich young ruler. We've had the disciples telling the little kids to go away from Jesus. And Jesus is working very hard for them to understand that the normal power structures of the haves and the have-nots in whatever culture you live in is not the way to see who is blessed and who is first in the kingdom of God that the weakness of the little children, they have presence and right before the highest in the land, the king himself, do not bar the little children from coming to the feet of their Savior. Do not confuse well-intentioned, fairly moral people with righteousness in a biblical sense, because if they cannot loosen their hands from around their money, we know where their true righteousness is. The rich young ruler had many virtues. His greatest difficulty was that he was still in bondage to the notion that because he had barns, because he was wealthy, he was safe. That's not where his ultimate safety came from. And even when a rich person comes to faith, Paul has to wrestle with how in the kingdom of God, in the book uh, to the Corinthians, that we come together in faith, in equality in faith. 
that we gather around the table not in the order of our social presence and power, but in the reality that we come as sons and daughters, all of us, with different callings and responsibilities, some given ten talents to manage, some given one. But all nonetheless, children of God. So in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is trying to inform the disciples that we function differently. And that impacts even the way our economic relationships are viewed in the kingdom of heaven. Whether or not the winds of tides uh, of economic theory blow one way or another in any given society or culture, this is the way the kingdom functions. This is the way wisdom proceeds. And tragically, but not surprisingly, at the end of chapter 20, we have uh, Jesus foretelling his own death. So this is what it means to be first. You get nailed to a cross. Uh, and then after that, uh, there is this, the sons of Deb- Zebedee's mother coming up and saying, look, by the way, can my sons be first? So there's a whole part of this where it could preach an entire sermon series about how thick people really are uh, and how Matthew is delighting to show that Jesus is hammering this notion over teaching time, teaching time, teaching time, and how Jesus' disciples are like, great, got it. There will be some people who are last. I would like to be first. And so taking a moment to recognize that when Jesus preaches this great spiritual reality, this great theology, this great truth about what it means to be created in the image of God, he expects that it has real-life implications on the way two people in an economic relationship treat one another given that reality. The primary reason for this parable is for the disciples to understand the generosity of God and His ability to use all kinds of people in different seasons over long periods of time and short periods of time for His glory. But what He chooses to do is tell that story by reorganizing the very fundamental way in which I need to get economics are undermined by the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven, this is the way things work. Now, what do we have? We have a a harvest, we have workers, and we have roles. There is a master of the house. Somebody owns the property. He is responsible for it. He has the vision to think through it. He has accumulated that property. He has stewarded it well. And now there is a harvest coming. Not all of us are called to be managers. Not all of us have the ability to have visions. The... uh, Book of Ephesians talks about the wisdom of different kinds of giftings of people, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and evangelists. Not everybody is gifted in the exact same way. And the Bible would never suggest that the way to economic bliss is to pretend that people are all gifted the same way and nobody has a role for being in charge. It's not biblical. There's a master of the house. There are people gifted to start businesses from nothing, take on the weight and responsibility of guiding it through the ups and downs of economic recessions and growth, planning for the future, investing in new technology. My stars, not all of us are called or delight to think about those things, and it doesn't mean that we are not created in the image of God or we're less significant, or that those who are gifted in that way should be thought poorly of 
or brought down to my level, whatever on earth that means. And what this man does is he goes out and he hires people to do the work. And they, collectively, so quick, there'll be a, another conversation later in the sermon. Um, they collectively bargain for a wage, ironically. There's a plural there. They agreed to work for a Daenerys. There's a certain which, uh, apparently, it's not a bad idea to agree as a group what you'll get paid. And the owner of the property respects that. Apparently, you don't go around and see if you can get uh, three of the guys for less money and then this guy. No, there's a sense in which I want to go through the front door. Y'all will be doing the work. What is the right wage, cost of living, whatever, Daenerys was a good, strong wage. It wasn't exorbitant. It wasn't undercutting. It was a slightly above solid wage for workers. And he agrees to it. And they go out and they work. There is a standard then. Now, when the, work, when the manager goes back out to go get more people... We go to verse 4, and he says, I will treat you right. Now, again, the question is, well, how on earth do we know what right means? Well, again, context of Scripture, it's passages like Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And then we could jump to uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 5. And there the proverb says, whoever mocks the poor man insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. A worker trusting in a godly boss knows that not just those passages, but many others remind those who have the ability to set wages or to negotiate with wages are to honor the workers to use their resources to do so, to be generous, to not be miserly, to care for those that work. The maker is generous, desires to see the other cared for. And then, just to stress this, he pays them in reverse. Now, there's a wisdom and an illustration to this. So the scholars tell us that if someone was faithful in wanting to get work, and there's every evidence in this passage that these folks who were hired in the 11th hour had been there all day, why do you think they were still there? Again, it doesn't take too much uh, surmising to understand that they probably looked like the least productive Right, The first guys you're going to grab in the morning are the ones who are young, the ones who look like they have a strong back and can work hard. Right, Who's left at the end of the day? The 47-year-old guy who's bent over and can't extend his arm anymore uh, and is haggard or maybe missing a hand. It's the folks who are a little slower on the production line. And they're there at the end of the day because nobody hires them because they cannot what? Cannot maximize profits. This is a losing relationship. Now, the owner needs some additional help. 
But how does he treat them? He treats them like the finest of the workers and the strongest of the workers, those who could endure the heat of the day. And he honors them in front of the rest of the workers. Now, what's the analogy to today? Well, the analogy to today is the best in what we do for those who are physically and mentally handicapped, those who have challenges in recognizing that when we hire folks in the collective reality of a business, that there is value to their work, value to what they contribute, and value to them as those created in the image of God. And that it is who and what we are to bear with one another in our labors with those who may not be the people that we would pick at 6 a.m. They didn't bear through the heat of the day. They didn't produce the same number of bushels per hour. We begin to see that there's something in the kingdom of heaven that is certainly about getting the work done, but is not about the maximization of profit as it's currently understood. The owner of this property did not have to pay at that level. He, didn't ha- he could have, all of us would have done the math, chances are, and going, okay, well, if it's this many hours and this many bushels, and that's the way most of us pay. Something else is being challenged here. It's a challenge to understand the dignity of who people are and the unbelievably weighty role that those who are gifted to manage and to own have in dignifying those who work for them and recognize that they are created in the image of God. Now, we talked about the positives of collective bargaining early on. Now we talk about the negatives of what happens when labor unions are left to run feral. Some of you, I was gonna, I'm going to do it, artists. Some of you are thinking maybe that I have a stole, you know, if I speak too often about the positives of labor unions, that, uh, that maybe I should get a Chekovara stole, you know, sort of I'm advocating for that. All right, that was funny for me. But the reality is what happens collectively with these folks There's a sense of demanding. There's a sense of entitlement. There's a sense of impressing now to dictate to the manager what is right and wrong with his own property. And the manager rightly says, we already agreed on a very fair wage. What I do with the rest of these folks is my business, not yours. And here is the tragedy. The laborers are actually advocating that those who are being treated generously would be treated worse. That the selfishness is so inherent in the human being that here, left with an opportunity to see my stars, what a man to work for, what a boss to work for, what a company to work for. It honors and cares for those who are uh, out because of illness, those who are on maternity leave, those who have children, those whose production is different. They are honored and cared for in such a way that, yes, sometimes I bear more of the weight. But what I know is that this is a generous and gracious oriented towards both the creation of a good product and the care of those who produce it. The laborers work against their own good ends, which is not 
a surprising thing for humans to do. Think of the horror of what they're saying. We know you were generous to the people. Instead of being able to say, you know what? Frank's been busted up for six months and hasn't been able to bring a whole day's wages home to his family. Thank goodness he found this boss who hired him for two or three hours and his family's going to eat tonight because he was paid a full wage. That's the kind of boss I want to work for. And when we see Christian business people doing that, they are often exceedingly well regarded in their towns. We all know people who are in small businesses trying to live out what it means as managers and employees to work well in the context of caring for one another in the image of God. It is a challenging and complicated thing. And to be a support and to honor and to encourage, knowing that as those who are laborers, we do not grumble. We are not called to undermine, and we're not called to think that we're supposed to do something we're not gifted to do. Nothing is more discouraging. I worked at UPS for years than all of us thinking we were so much smarter than management, and yet somehow Big Brown was this massive company. They often challenged us to believe they were competent, but nonetheless, who were we? We were those called to, at that point, work hard to earn our pay to encourage. It is a hard thing in our society to recognize that some are managing and some are managers. Some are owners and some are laborers. That doesn't change and it won't change necessarily in the kingdom of heaven. The notion that those who are responsible to have the buck stop with them and those who have the privilege and the honor of making and building and crafting and serving first will be last, and the last will be first, is a tale for both the worker and the manager. Because as we started out this sermon, we are called to care for the other. We are to think of how to make our boss look better as we lean in and do the good work. Not cover up sin, not be involved in silliness. No, of course not. The normal means in which by the opportunity to care for those we work for by doing our jobs well. And as managers to think of the other before ourselves in caring for our workers and providing them what they need to be safe, what they need to be cared for in their work. To think of the other before ourselves, that is the way in which the ethics of the kingdom of God begin to enter into our economic relationships. Not what can I get from you, but how do we care for one another in the midst of the privilege and the joy and the reality of these economic exchanges, of doing the work that God gives us and calls us to do. Practically speaking, amazing how, just imagine how this passage comes home to Peter in Acts 15. What does it mean for one to be brought in late and to be treated with greater honor or the same honor? Here's Peter who was with Jesus since the beginning, being faced down and disagreed with and contended with by some guy named Paul who didn't even 
spend time with Jesus when he was on earth, gets drafted in later as a player to be named later, and then runs around the entire world sharing the gospel and seeing success. And now he's correcting Peter's understanding of what the gospel means in relationship to how we are at peace with God. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And Peter began to learn the lesson of what it meant to serve humbly before the king and to trust that God would work out all things for his glory and for the good of Peter and the good of Paul and the good of the kingdom. It is not always an easy thing to be a servant. It takes a great deal of trust. But in the end, for us, it's never trust fully in the human. It is trust in our Savior. It is trust in the one who is bringing the kingdom. It is trust in the one who is king and made himself a servant. It is trust in the one who made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, eschewing all of his wealth and all of his power, that he might wash our feet and endure our shame. Is there anything that we're called to do in our economic interactions which cannot be strengthened and encouraged by the sure knowledge of who our Savior is, what the Master has called us to do, and how he dignifies each one in their goal, sorry, in their role and in their gifting? We have the opportunity to serve one another as Christ has served us. What does that begin to do? to our understanding of the relationship between our workers and our managers. I believe that if we begin to let the Trinity and the work of Christ shape our interaction, we will find ourselves in a rather different place. I imagine a little bit less tense, a little less at each other's throats, and a little more delighting in the goodness of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, you desire for us to reflect who you are, to engage who you are, to embrace who you are. Lord, we ask that's all that we would do as we seek to be good employees, as we seek to be good uh, owners and good managers, Lord, we seek simply to reflect your glory and your care. Lord, may we trust that in challenging circumstances, reflecting your glory, even though it feels like it's not wise, Lord, we pray that you would continue to show the wisdom of humanity to be foolishness in light with the wisdom of the cross. May we trust in that in Christ's name. Amen. As the